0: Good morning, morning everyone watching us online, good morning to everyone in the video venue, we're glad that you're here with us today. I'm glad at the opportunity to fill the pulpit this weekend to give my dad a little bit of a break, I think it had been something around 10 weeks straight that he had been in the pulpit and his uh, voice, his body could just use a little bit of some time off. Hopefully you enjoyed last week's message as we talked about fathers. I know you're looking forward to next weekend as we have our patriotic services, the Spirit of America. I hope you plan on being a part of that. What I want to do right now, though, before we get into any of that fun stuff next week, is to spend some time talking about what I believe is an issue for every single person in one form or another. And so we're going to be talking about anxiety, anxiety. We're going to be talking about anxiety this morning. We're going to be talking about peace. Anxiety is the issue. Peace is the goal. And before I really get into anything, I want to let you know two uh, two important notes really quick. One is that we're really just going to scratch the surface this morning. Uh, For all of the, the stuff that we could talk about, all of the passages that we could discuss, all of the references and steps we could take, we're really just going to scratch the surface this morning. And the second note is that What I want to do in our time together is more, uh, more I just want to share with you than I want to preach to you. And the reason I say it like that is because, you know, I am no stranger to anxiety. I've experienced it a number of different times in my life, as I'm sure many of you have as well. And because of that, I have listened to a number of sermons on peace. I've read books about overcoming anxiety, and while I know there's still a lot to learn, a lot to study, and a lot to do, when I was thinking about what I could preach about, what I could talk about this weekend, honestly, I started to think about anxiety, and I started to think about peace, and I came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe people could benefit from some of the things that I have listened to, some of the things that I've read, and so what I want to do in our time together this morning is share some of what I've learned, Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already done that, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. As you're finding your place, I want to let you know that we're not going to do a verse by verse study of this passage today. What I'm going to do is read this text as a way to lay the foundation for everything else that we're going to discuss as we look at the issue of anxiety and the goal of peace. We are going to spend some time in it, uh, especially as we talk about steps that we can take to experience peace, but it's not going to be the typical verse-by-verse look. So, having prefaced it with that, would you stand with me, wherever you are, for the reading of God's Word? You can follow along, Philippians 4, verses 4-9, through as I read aloud. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you. you may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. In your handout, there's just a couple of blanks and... Um, What they are, they're more like subject headings than they are points. They're just kind of notes to help guide our time together today. So if you want to, you can write down just the word anxiety next to number one. This is the first thing that we're going to discuss. This is the first thing that I want to spend some time on. Paul says in the passage from Philippians that we just read, do not be anxious about anything. He gives us that command. It's very straightforward. It's very to the point. And I think for the most part, we all like that command. You know, we don't want to experience anxiety. We don't want to go through life dealing with these things. But we have the very natural question of how. How do I do this? How can I live life this way? And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later. But before we get into the how, before we get into, you know, the what peace really is, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why we get anxious in the first place. You know, what causes anxiety in our lives? I know for each of us there's probably a unique set of factors, but I think there are a couple of things that we can look at that are universal. And so the first one, one of the things that I believe causes anxiety in our lives is simply our expectations. Our expectations. You can write that down if you want. There's not a blank for it or anything like that, but... I believe that our expectations cause anxiety. In his book, God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis says this about expectations. He says, imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel, the other half think it a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable, and those who thought it was a prison might decide it was really surprisingly comfortable. Well, what is he saying? He's saying that so much of the time our anxiety stems not from our actual circumstances, but from what we expected things to be ahead of time. I mean, if I run a hotel and you come in and I I set you up in a room and on the way to the room I'm walking you there and I say, this is the best room we have in the hotel. Presidents and foreign dignitaries have stayed here before. I'm surprised you got it. You're so lucky. Well, what are you going to imagine? What is that going to do to your expectations? And then if I open up the door to just an ordinary hotel room, how are you going to feel? How are you going to react? Well, you may be, you you know, you might complain, you might not, but no matter what, you're going to be disappointed. If I take another person with me to the same room, but this time on the way there, I'm very apologetic and I'm so sorry. This is the only room we have left. It's generous that we even call it a room. It used to be a storage closet, but I hope that you'll be able to make do tonight. I open up the door, as I said, to the same room. How are they going to feel? It's not so bad. I've stayed in worse rooms than this. Both people experience the same set of circumstances, but for one it's much worse, and for the other it's much better. And the reason that I believe uh, talking about our expectations is crucial to understanding anxiety in our lives is because I believe each and every one of us go through life thinking that life isn't supposed to be like it is. We go around thinking, this is not what I expected. This is not what it's supposed to be. And so we carry that weight, we carry that anxiety around with us. You know, no matter where we are, we think things like, you know, I, I don't have as much money as I thought I would by this point in my life, or, or, you know, my marriage is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, or we have kids and we think, you know, being a parent is nothing like I expected. I'm sure that you can relate to that. You can relate to any one of those things. Jesus tries to warn us about this in Scripture. Look on the screens at John 16, Verse 33. It says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this is something that we've heard. You know, if you've grown up in church, if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, I believe that you have heard this and you know it. But, and I'll say this a couple of times this morning, it's one of those things where I wonder how many of us really believe it in a practical, everyday Sort of way. Do you really wake up and think. I'm going to experience trouble. Do you really think this is going to be a bad day. I mean sometimes yeah. You wake up and you know. This is going to be a rough one. But most of the time. Our expectations are just not wired like that. And, you know, all throughout his ministry, Jesus says things that kind of hint to the reality of life in this world. He, he talks to his apostles about how he's preparing a place for them in his father's house, because this world is not our home. He says that people hated him, and they're going to hate us. He says, you know, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. In John 16, when he says, you will have trouble, the word... In my NIV that we read as trouble, uh, in the original language, it's is interesting. It doesn't describe a difficult situation like we might initially think. What it describes is pressure. And so you get this image of something just pressing together. And I love that because I believe we all know what it's like to experience pressure in life. Pressure to do something, pressure to be something, pressure to act a certain way, pressure to conform, pressure to give in, pressure to let go of something. And it can be, you know, very important. It can have to do with our faith, you know, pressure to to give up on something we believe, pressure to not make such a big deal out of the Word of God. But it can also be, and I still believe this is applicable, it can also be just the everyday pressures of life. You know, we have pressure to pay the bills on time, pressure to get lunches made, pressure to, to you know, have a clean house, pressure to wash clothes, pressure to, to manage our, our schedule. I mean, I know that with, uh, with my life right now, I feel like what happens most of the time is I sit down at the end of the day after the kids go to bed and I look at Kara and I think, what did we do today? Now, I know that you've experienced that. The time just goes by so fast. You can experience anxiety. You think, you know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be like. You know, even for all of the warnings that Jesus gives, you know, we looked at that specific text, but there's other instances. For all the warnings that he gives and, and the reality where he says, you know, you will have trouble in life, I think, again, in a practical way, a lot of us just don't really believe him. Not not in a way that changes how we live our lives. You know, yeah, there's going to be bad days, but trouble, that's a big word. That's a loaded word. I have insurance. I have a good job. I have a good home. I have a good marriage. You know, yeah, we'll be okay. Or maybe, you know, maybe you're a little bit different. You know, you think, oh, I'm not going to just outright disagree with Jesus. That's a mistake. So yeah, I know that I'm going to have trouble in life. But at the same time, when something happens... What you realize is that what you were thinking of when you thought there'll be trouble in your life is not quite the same thing that Jesus was thinking of when he said, you will have trouble in your life. And our expectations, even of bad things, even of difficulties, cause problems, we experience anxiety, we get overwhelmed, some people are really burdened by this they can't deal with the fact that things just aren't the way they're supposed to be it's one of the reasons that we experience anxiety, another reason another reason that we have anxiety in our lives is the very real reality that we have enemies, we have enemies if you want to you can write that down, and again you know we know this we realize this, yes the devil is real But how many of us go around every single day thinking, at this moment, I have an enemy who is trying to destroy me. I have an enemy who is trying to ruin my relationship with God. He's trying to ruin my marriage. He's trying to ruin my career. He's trying to ruin my role as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife. You know, and we've always been at war. We've always had an enemy. Before you accepted Jesus as your Savior, who was your enemy? Who were you at war with? we were at war with God we just don't think of it like that because God is good because God tries to save his enemies God sends Jesus to die on the cross for his enemies but the moment we accept Jesus as our savior the moment God becomes our ally we have a new enemy and Satan you know he's not powerful like God is powerful but he's not to be taken lightly and he's a much nastier enemy 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Okay, so what does he do? You know, he's our enemy, but how does that cause me anxiety? How does that cause problems in my life? You know, Satan is my enemy, but God is my ally. Well, what he does is he criticizes. He accuses. He slanders. The word devil means slanderer. And so he is constantly criticizing us before God. I mean, think about the story of Job. You know, Satan is in the presence of God and he says, God, Job doesn't really love you. He only follows you around because you have blessed him. Job doesn't really love you. He only listens to you because you've kept him healthy. This is what he does. He criticizes God to us. Think about the garden. You know, God doesn't really love you. If you are each other and you just think about all the terrible things that people do to one another and all the ways that they justify it. You know, we see somebody do something wrong and we know that it's wrong right away, but if we're in that situation, it's like, well, this is different. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what they've done to me. You don't understand my circumstances. He follows us around and He reminds us of our sins, our, our failures, our mistakes. I mean, I believe that we've all experienced this. You know, you're walking through life and then just out of the blue, you're reminded of this terrible thing you said, this horrible thing you did, this event that took place in your life. And he's there. I know what you did. I know, I know the sins you've committed, and God knows too. And if you let him stop right there, it causes a lot of problems because what Satan is so good at is he's good at half-truths. Because, yeah, you know what? When I'm reminded of my sins, it's true. I sinned. I don't have an excuse. It was terrible. It separated me from God. And if I were to end right there... It could ruin my life. But when we move forward and remember that Jesus does know our sins because he died for our sins and he gives us grace, it helps us deal with that. That's one enemy, one reason we have anxiety. Another enemy is our own fallen flesh. You know, we've been saved, but we still live with our fallenness. This is why James says that we are tempted and dragged away by our own evil desires, this reality that we can't trust ourselves. We can't trust ourselves in certain situations with certain people in certain circumstances. This is where we get those famous words from the Apostle Paul. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. That's the power of our own fallen flesh that we live with every single day. And you know, while that does cause anxiety, while it is frustrating that, you know, we have weaknesses and that we're tempted, not because the devil is tempting us, but because we have these wicked desires inside of ourselves, I'll kind of say this right now. I I read these words from Paul, and it's a little bit reassuring to me, only because You know, I have felt this way in my life. I believe many, if not all of you, have felt this way in your life. And it's reassuring to know that Paul felt this way too. Because one of the the greatest weapons the devil has is to make us feel cut off and alone. So when we sin or when we're tempted, you know, he tells us, well, you can't tell anyone about that. You can't bring that up. What will they think of you? How are you going to handle this? And if he can cut you off from someone, if he can cut you off from God, if he can cut you off from the church, then he's able to do so much more damage and cause so many more problems in your life. So we see the devil accusing us. We realize that we can't trust our own fallen flesh. It drags us away with our own evil desires. These things, they cause anxiety in our lives. They cause problems in our lives. But another one, the final enemy that I wanna talk about before we finally move on to peace is the world. We have the world around us causing trouble. And you know, when I was putting all this together. I was trying to think, you know, well, how am I going to talk about the world as an enemy? And you know, what scripture verses can I reference? And how can I really drive home the point? And the first thing that popped into my mind that I've not been able to shake was the story of the rich fool. Not the rich young ruler, the rich fool. We see this in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. I'm not going to read it this morning, but I know you know it because I know that we have talked about it a number of times. This is the man who is blessed. He's blessed with an overabundance of crops. He's blessed with an overabundance of everything. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to tear down his barns. He decides to build bigger barns. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to do anything the rest of my life. I'm going to live the good life. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm just going to keep track of all the stuff that I have, and I'm just going to take it easy. And what Jesus says at the end of the parable is that the man's life was going to be demanded of him that very night. And the reason that I believe this story is an example of the world as an enemy is because what we see him do is decide that he's going to live for right now. He's not gonna live his life for eternity. He's not gonna live his life for others. He's not gonna think about the people that could have benefited from his overabundance. The only thing he's going to think about, the only thing he's going to care about is his own comfort, his own satisfaction. And I believe this causes anxiety in our lives because so often this mindset is what is, it masquerades as peace. Because we have trouble, we have problems, and we think, you know what, yeah, my life is kind of rough, but if I could only get this house, if I could only get this job, if I could only get X amount of dollars, then I'd be fine then I wouldn't have anxiety. Then I wouldn't have to worry about anything. And we think that's the goal. We think that's worth striving for. We think that's worthy of our time. But it's just not the case. None of this stuff lasts. And if it doesn't last, how? How will we ever think that it satisfies? If we're always having to replace, if we're always having to rebuild, if we're always having to do more, John MacArthur in his book, Anxious for Nothing, says, Ironically, the most indulged society the world has known thus far is also the most discontent. The more people have, the more discontent they are apt to be with what they have. Okay. Right down next to number two, the word peace. I'm done talking about anxiety. Uh, I think that we were honest about it. I think we dealt with it. I know that we just scratched the surface uh, but at the same time, I believe that it's time to move on to something a little bit more positive. Look back at your, our foundation text for this morning, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. We're not going to read the whole thing again. But there are two things, two aspects that I want to highlight that I believe will help us bring about and experience peace in our lives. We see them in verse 4 and in verse 8. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Jump down to verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In these two verses, as I said, I believe we'll see two things that will help bring about peace in our lives. The first one is pretty obvious. The second one might be a little bit of a surprise. If you want to, you can uh, write down the word rejoice under peace. I don't have a blank for it, like I said, but you can do that if you really want to take notes this morning. Write down the word rejoice. Paul tells the church in Philippi to rejoice. He says says it twice. He says rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Now, this emphasizes the importance of it. Whenever you're reading the word of God and you see something repeated, it needs to to perk up your ears. You need to underline it. You need to to put some kind of note by it because it, it really highlights how important it is. What Paul is saying is that above all else and before all else, we need to rejoice. We need to be thankful. The Greek word here is in a present imperative tense, which means that Paul is calling the believers to continually rejoice. Think about that for just a moment. Do you know anyone who continually rejoices? I mean, what are the implications of living your life like that? Do we need to be thankful all the time? Do we need to rejoice no matter how terrible something is? Do we need to be do, do we need to be thankful no matter how difficult something is? Yes. The answer is yes. And you might think, well, yeah, it's easy for Paul to tell the church in Philippi to rejoice. I know my church history. I know that this is a good letter. This isn't one of those, you know, really messed up churches. This letter is filled with love and encouragement. So he says rejoice. But you need to always remember who the author is. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's in prison and he's saying rejoice. You need to remember, uh, for instance, uh, in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles, they rejoice as they leave the Sanhedrin because they've been counted worthy of suffering. They were suffering and they rejoice. And we do this, we focus on this because the reality is anxiety cannot survive an atmosphere of praise. Anxiety cannot survive an atmosphere of praise. Now, this doesn't mean that we praise God because something terrible has happened. It doesn't mean that we praise God because something tragic has happened, but we praise God because He is worthy of our praise at all times, no matter our circumstances. No matter our circumstances. We say thank you before we even make a request. We praise God before he even does anything. And, you know, you might think, well, how does that work? How can I I praise God for something that hasn't happened yet? But what we're doing is we're saying, God, whatever you decide to do, I trust you. Whatever you decide to do, I understand that you're God and I'm not. Whatever you decide to do, I believe that you have my best interest at heart and you know what's best for me in a way that I cannot possibly know. And we cultivate that attitude over time by saying thank you, by praising God. Not just on good days, not just on easy days, but all the time. And we do it before we even ask for something. We say thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're going to do. One of the things that I've been doing this year is reading through the Psalms as part of a devotional that I have. It's been a really good experience. You know, I've read the Psalms before, but I've never really studied them like I am now. Uh, It's been convicting, which isn't always fun, but it's good, it's beneficial to your study of the Word of God. And you know, I know you know this, what you see in the Psalms over and over again is praise to God and and dependence on God and devotion to God and, and lifting God up, you know, no matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties. One of the things that I I love is in Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7, David says this. I'm going to read it actually from the ESV translation because I believe it's a little bit better. But he says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then David speaks about himself. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Well, what is he saying? He is saying that he is more joyful. He has more joy based solely on his relationship with God than anyone else does when everything good is going their way. You know, because of the time this was written, he says, you know, when their grain and wine abound, but it would be just as easy for us to think that, you know, David is more joyful than they are when the stock market is up and when they get a promotion and when they get a bonus check. And that's an, incredible, that's an incredible thing to read, and it's an, an incredible goal to shoot for, to have that kind of joy in our relationship. That's the kind of joy that I want to have in my relationship with God. I hope that's what you want. That's what I want for you. And this is what happens when, when we rest in God rather than letting ourselves be controlled by our circumstances. And you know, the truth is that my circumstances still have way too much control over me and my attitude. My guess is that I'm not alone this morning when I say that. But at the same time, I don't want to be content to think that that's just the way things are. That's just the way things are going to be. I want something deeper. I want something better. I want that for you. I want us all to have something deeper, something better, something more secure. Secure. So we praise God at all times. We rejoice at all times. We say thank you to God before he even has a chance to act. And this goes so far in getting rid of anxiety because our attitude is one of praise and thankfulness and joy. And that's what we see in verse four. Now look at verse eight. Verse eight is filled with a lot of wonderful things. You know, this list that Paul gives us, it needs to be underlined. It needs to be memorized. You need to to be familiar with this list but the truth is when I was thinking about peace and bringing about peace and I looked at this passage the thing that really stuck out to me is what Paul says at the end of verse 8 he writes these words think about such things and that's the command that I want to spend a little bit of time on you can write down the word think this morning if you're just determined to take notes Some of you don't know what to do if you're not taking notes at church. You know, oftentimes people accuse Christians of, well, you know, of not being very smart. Because if we would only think, if we would only use our brains, then we wouldn't believe all of this stuff. Or if we would only use our brains, then, then we wouldn't take it so seriously. And you know, that's my favorite. You know, it's okay to believe in God. It's okay to go to church. Just don't let it get in the way of your life. That's the attitude of so many people. But what we see in scripture time and time again is the command to think, the command to dwell, the command to meditate. And this is because, you know, I believe that the more we know about God, the more secure that we can feel. The more secure that we can feel. And I say it like that, and I talk about our feelings because, you know, our our relationship with God, our salvation, is not dependent on our education. But I believe it is easier to experience peace more consistently when we have a deeper and a fuller knowledge of God. And when we study the Bible and we begin to better know who God is and how God has provided for His people, it should assure us because we know that we are God's people now and God is the same today that He was yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. I mean, you think about the way that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, the story of the two builders, You know, both of them experience a storm. Both of them experience something that shakes them to their core. The storm is powerful enough to destroy their homes but the man who has built his house on the foundation the solid rock he survives he weathers the storm and the way that you and I can do that in our lives one of the ways that we can do that in our lives is by studying is by learning is by growing and having a more secure knowledge of who God is and what that means for us and how that changes the way we live our lives so we look at the Bible and we see how God has been bigger than people's circumstances all along. We, we look at the story of Abraham and we see how God was bigger than his circumstances time and time again from moving him across the world to, to dealing with Abraham's mistakes to dealing with his old age and still providing him a son and providing him a sacrifice we look at the life of Joseph and we see how it's almost kind of comical, just one bad thing happening after another, but we know that God is at work in each and every situation to bring about something incredible. We look at the life of Hannah and we see how God gives her a son because she comes to the temple and she prays and she's devout and she offers her son as a, as a worker for God to live for him. We see David defeat the giant Goliath. We read about Mary and the birth of Jesus and all of these things. They fortify us against anxiety in our lives because we have a deeper, more secure knowledge of who God is. They give us assurance against the future. And I believe this is crucial because for a lot of people, it's not anxiety over things that have happened, it's anxiety over what might happen. Will I have a job? Will I have a home? Where will we live? Will I be able to retire? What's going to happen with my children? What's going to happen with my grandchildren? And we feel overwhelmed because we can't control any of it. And we have no power over it. And we don't even know what's going to happen. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jay Adams, a former professor and author, writes these words. He says, Tomorrow always belongs to God. Whenever we try to take hold of it, we try to steal what belongs to Him. Sinners want what is not theirs to have and thereby destroy themselves. God has given us only today. You know, when we understand that tomorrow belongs to God, it frees us. It frees us in a way that nothing else can to live for right now. And I don't mean that in a worldly or materialistic way, like when I was talking about the rich fool, I mean it in a way that recognizes who is in control and what responsibilities we have been given. You know, we need to think, we need to grow. Part of our salvation experience involves the transformation of our mind. This is what Paul says in Romans. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You know, that scripture, it's a challenge not to just, you know, cast a passing glance at the things of God, but to set your mind to focus, to dwell, to know the things of God and who God is inside and out. So much more than just facts that we can ramble off but for them to be second nature, for them to guide us and drive us and to be the very things that we build our lives on. All right, real quickly, too quickly, I need to talk about what this peace is. We talked about anxiety, the enemies, the expectations. We talked about you know, how we can experience peace, rejoicing and, and you know, thinking about the things of God, studying the things of God, but what is this Peace. If we just stay in our text from Philippians, we see that this is the peace of God, and we see that it transcends all understanding. It's not an outer peace, it's an inner peace. And I know that I have talked about this before, so if it sounds familiar, it's because I've said this. But people often think of peace as simply the absence of conflict. And you know, while that is not entirely wrong... This peace that God offers us, that he has for us, is is far deeper than that. Rather than the peace of God being the absence of anything, it is the presence of something. It is the presence of tranquility. It is the presence of an inner calm. It is the presence of stability and security. It guards us. It guards us from anxiety. It guards us from fear. It guards us from doubt. This is what the peace of God does. There is no end to this peace. Just like God's mercies are new every morning, so is his peace. We will never use it up and it will never stop working for us. Well, as I said in the beginning, I feel like we really can only scratch the surface Uh, I know that when I was thinking about this and writing this and figuring out what to talk about and what to, to leave out and what to really spend some time on, it was beneficial for me. I hope that it has been beneficial for you as well. I believe that anxiety, that this passage of Scripture is something that we all, I believe that we all relate to. We all identify with it on some level. You know, some of us experience it more severely than others, but I believe that we all know it in one way or another. I remember when I was a freshman in high school and I was on the baseball team and it was my first year playing, you know, obviously I was a freshman, my first year playing, and while I had a lot of fun and while uh, I have some good memories, the reality was that it was stressful. I was worried, I was worried about you know all the things that could go wrong, I was worried about how much I might actually get to play and and all of those things and my dad would tell me that I played not to lose rather than playing to win. And what he was saying is that I was more worried about making a mistake than I was about doing well. And I prayed about this a lot when I was in organized sports. And one of the things that I remember doing was taking my baseball hat and flipping it upside down. And on the underside of the bill where it was white, I wrote these words. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And the goal was for me to focus on Jesus, to dwell on Jesus and then just play baseball. Because when I focused on baseball and when I dwelled on baseball, I became overwhelmed with all the things that I needed to do, all the ways that I had made a mistake, all the stuff that I needed to practice. And I couldn't just play And you know, for all of the the things that we've talked about this morning that I believe are are beneficial, the fundamental truth that I, I feel the need to leave with you is the reality that when you are focused on Jesus truly and deeply, you don't have time to be anxious about your own life. And when you think about and when you meditate on the Word of God, it gives you a perspective about life that nothing else can. Nothing else can. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Let's pray together this morning.